Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. This episode of From Page to Practice is a Charter College of Teaching Impact Journal special where I am joined by college members, fellows and chartered teachers to discuss the contents of the latest issue. If you enjoy the discussion and want to get a hold of your own copy of Impact, visit chartered.college and join as a member. Hi and welcome back if you've chosen to listen to this whole mini-series in order. As promised, we'll jump straight in with a contribution from Toria on Sam Sims and the Harry Fletcher Woods article on evidence-based professional development. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about identifying evidence-based professional development, programmes, forms and mechanisms. I found this article fascinating because I love learning about professional development and I'm always interested about how one form of professional development will work well in one setting but won't necessarily transfer over to the other. So they start the article by talking about teachers acquiring new skills in a number of ways, either through experience, working with other high-quality teachers, or effective professional development. They then go on to um, sort of talk about what effective professional development is and, and the different ways people go about it. Because actually, how do we know that the professional development is going to be effective? And they talk about programmes, forms and mechanisms. Programmes are basically um, well-established. They are often often attached to a brand name. The materials can sometimes be acquired off the shelf as part of a resource pack. And they're well-established. There are mixed results, though, about these professional development programmes. Because what tends to happen, as they say in this article, is that they can have really, really positive results in initial settings. But actually, when they are scaled up, they are less effective because the original developers have less influence and the programme becomes warped. So it has mixed results. They then go on to discuss forms. And they define forms as being defined by a set of characteristics, typical identifying features. And they say that unlike programmes, forms can accommodate variation in the specific materials. Now, interestingly, the only form that has had any positive results today is instructional coaching. Um, But what they say is that a form is more portable than a programme and it's easier to design professional development around the characteristics of a form than it is necessarily a a, a programme. They then go on to talk about mechanisms. And Susan Mitchie and her colleagues have defined mechanisms as observable, replicable and irreducible components of an intervention designed to alter or redirect causal processes that regulate behaviour. Basically, in a nutshell, mechanisms are basic building blocks and she and her team have, have identified 93 mechanisms, so building blocks, and what they've done is they've organised them into 16 clusters. What they say, though, is that actually one mechanism's positive result is very much based on the other mechanisms that it is combined with. So it, it, 
it, parent, it, they say it is effective in changing practice across, across a range of contexts and that mechanisms should appear in P, um, PD programs or forms that have evidence of being effective. It can be deployed in a very flexible way. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, what the authors conclude is very much that programmes, mechanisms and forms are all vital in professional development, but actually they work best when put together. So it's, it's about really using them as complementary as opposed to distinct. Thank you so much for allowing me to talk on this article and I feel I've learned so much from reading it. And um, yes, thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. The next article is about making departmental CPD more effective. First, we'll hear from Richard, who wrote the article, and then Rachel Ball returns with her reflections. Hi, my name's Richard MacDonald. I'm a Director of English and a Trust CPD Lead for Driffield School and Sixth Form in East Yorkshire. Um, Thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Rebecca, just to talk about my article for Impact um, on evidence-informed CPD. The article that I wrote for Impact was mostly about CPD at a departmental level, but a lot of this, I feel, um, translates to um, whole school or whole trust CPD, both of which I led as well. And I think for me, um, it's really important to highlight and to recognise that teaching is not a time-rich profession. Um, and Unfortunately, staff CPD too often comes low on the list of priorities um, within schools and behind things like Ofsted ratings and performance tables. And I just think that's inherently wrong. Um, At the end of the day, the thing that impacts most on the lives of our students and also if you look at the evidence on the learning of our students... Um, is actually the quality of teaching that they get in the classroom. Um, I also feel that we have a kind of a moral imperative as employers um, to help our staff get better. And certainly that's one of my drivers as a head of department. I want to make sure that all the staff that I line manage are kind of having that opportunity to get better at what they do. Um, I think that and kind of my own priorities, coupled with the knowledge of kind of what makes effective learning for students in the classroom and what effective learning looks like actually has given me quite a low tolerance for ineffective CPD. Um, When I think back to past examples, I remember as a trainee in one of my placement schools, um, I had to attend CPD sessions um, on the pay structure for all staff, um, which had no relevance to me whatsoever. I knew that I wasn't going to be working there as an NQT. um, there are other staff NQTs, for example, for whom that that training, um, if you could use that word training, um, just wasn't relevant. So that kind of waste of time for CPD. Um, I also think kind of the death by PowerPoint is a little bit of a, a dangerous way to go. By all means, it's a useful tool. But again, I remember a CPD session that I had to sit through. Um, and if we're thinking about the idea that memory is the residue of thought and that idea that obviously what we remember is what we've learned. Um, 
all I can remember about that training session is that there were birds animated on the slides um, and it was a, a very fancy thing. I remember the presenter at that point was very proud of their animation. Um, I can't remember anything else about that training, what it was about, anything at all. So I think that's another kind of example of ineffective CPD that was really a, a waste of teachers' time. And I think that's, that's an awful thing to say, but at the same time, I think we need to think about how are we wisely spending teachers' time. Um, certainly trying to kind of spend the budget of directed time and putting on some training because staff have got an hour that, that we need to fill, um, I don't think is particularly helpful either. And I don't think that breeds a great atmosphere of professional trust within a school either. I think I see um, training and CPD as so powerful um, as a tool. Um, in teachers, I feel like you have a captive audience, um, people who are in the job that they do because they value learning. Therefore, I imagine and I see it as kind of teachers are more likely to care about their own learning um, in comparison maybe to other professions because they recognise the value of learning to begin with. And I think you can add on to that the idea that obviously improvement is a powerful motivator. That idea of I'm getting better at my job is something that makes somebody want to work harder and want to do more. Um, I worry sometimes that awful CPD an ineffective CPD could actually have the opposite of effect where you kind of lose the trust of your staff. You you lose their kind of willingness to kind of help the students in your organisation because you end up just wasting their time. And I think that's, that's awful. Um, for me, I kind of engaged in CPD um, quite early on. As an NQT, I went back and um, did some training for ITTs at... Um, University of York and then did some training for ITTs um, in the school that I was in at that point as well. Um, at the end of the day I became a teacher because I like seeing students improve in the classroom, I like seeing kind of that look that they get when they, they get it and when they're getting better and they can see themselves and recognise for themselves that they're getting better as well. And I think seeing in colleagues as opposed to students is just as rewarding knowing that they know that they're getting better and that they can kind of realise that. Um, it's really, really rewarding. And I think even more so when you consider the impact that they then are having on multiple students and kind of all of the lives that they're impacting because of the things that you've helped them do through the, the CPD and the training and through kind of aiding that evaluation and reflection of their own practice. Um, I considered evidence-informed delivery of CPD when I first read the EEF's Guide to Implementation, which I mentioned in the article, um, and also the EAST framework from the Behavioural Insights team. Both of those, I think, are quite kind of important in the way that I shape CPD for my staff. Um, but I've also kind of really thought about the science of learning, so like the theories around memory and metacognition, and how they link in with staff learning, with staff CPD as well. When I think back to um, when the Charter College of Teaching was being set up, I attended the, the inaugural conference and one of the early kind of third space events on metacognition. And it really surprised me at that point that the impact of metacognition and the science of learning on CPD wasn't something that lots of people were talking about. Um, it surprised me that 
obviously we're we're so focused on making sure that for students we've got those low stakes quizzes we're thinking about retrieval practice we're thinking about the best way of kind of developing those schemas of knowledge whereas for staff cpd often it's isolated it's kind of one-offs um, you don't have that kind of coherent thought process about how are we sequencing that pedagogical knowledge for staff um, we're not really thinking about how are we quizzing their knowledge or assessing what they know and what they don't know. And I think it kind of highlights going back to those slides with those birds, the issue that you have that staff aren't prioritising the important things about CPD, the important things that help um, the staff they're delivering to remember um, what they've learned and apply what they've learned. Um, too often, kind of, there's that focus more on kind of entertaining the stuff that you've got in front of you um, and in the long run I don't think that's the best way to kind of build that trust with staff um, so for me like I said I think really writing the article was just a way of sharing um, my thoughts about evidence-informed CPD and an example of how I've practiced it in the hope that there are other leaders out there who um, whether they're leading a department or leading across a trust or across a school, kind of giving them an insight on how some of this evidence can actually impact the CPD that's being delivered and therefore lead to more effective and more impactful CPD that helps staff get better at what they do. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. The other article which I immediately shared with middle leaders, the one that had an impact on me, was written by Richard MacDonald from the Education Alliance. And this was about making departmental CPD more effective. Again, this is something which is a priority in our academy at the moment. We are really keen for curriculum leaders to take the golden threads from the whole school CPD and plan appropriate CPD for their teams, given that they know their staff and they know their subjects the best. Um, we know that the most... Uh, the best CPD is immediately relevant and it's something that staff can immediately see this might work for me and moving away from whole school CPD and giving uh, de department leaders, curriculum leaders the autonomy to plan their own CPD programmes is one way of doing that. So the article challenges curriculum leaders about moving away from one-off sessions of CPD to having a really cohesive plan for the year based on a, a baseline of prior knowledge and experience. And this is something that I'm going to be working with staff at our academy in the near future on. MacDonald also emphasises the importance of research really driving the CPD delivery and that's another thing that we are really passionate about. We make pre-reading a focus for CPD sessions um, already but in the article he talks about dividing his staff into groups to summarise sections of relevant blogs or articles which he said led to deeper and more consistent engagement with the research. And I thought that was a really nice way of ensuring that the research plays a really central role and that it's not just an add-on. And this is something else that I'll be suggesting to and working with curriculum leaders about. I was really summar uh, really impressed by the whole magazine, to summarise, um, and I'll be definitely be taking away lots of challenges from it in terms of planning for the next year. And I'd really recommend it to teachers at all levels. There's something for everybody in the magazine. 
You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready-to-go staff training sessions. Next up, we hear from Assad with his thoughts related to journal clubs. Hello. So... I had the chance of reading the journal clubs promoting a career-long culture of research engagement article uh, by Beth Greville Giddings. In the article, um, she talks about um, how um, journal clubs have been a fundamental part of medical practice and um, the learning of medical students in the profession. And she was comparing this approach to how it could be used in the education sector. Um, firstly, she addresses the fact that journal clubs are something that um, does not necessarily take part of initial teacher training. Um, however, it's something that could be incredibly useful in making teachers more evidence informed. Um, now, the purposes of the journal clubs, she suggests, is to um, help engage different generations of teachers within a particular school to engage with research and to be able to critically evaluate those ideas so that they are able to um, embed uh, evidence-informed practice into their um, everyday classroom practice and to increase their sort of confidence and um their and to increase their professional judgment as well now working um so i'm currently a fourth year teacher um and in my previous school um i remember one of the assistant heads actually set up a research club on a friday morning um where um many of us um met just for um, a few minutes in the morning to read an article, to discuss those ideas and to then to take that away, try and apply some of those strategies within our classroom practice and then come back and evaluate whether that worked. Um, within this small research group, there were teachers from um, across all different um, uh, departments and different with different levels of experiences as well so I myself at the time was um in the third year of my teaching um there was an NQT a trainee and then other much much more experienced teachers within the same club as well now that was a really lovely way to be on a same level playing field with all of the other professionals within that same club and um uh, it created that sort of culture that actually you could um, you could discuss and evaluate these ideas without any form of professional judgment. Um, some some of the things that we did were things like um, reading articles around retrieval practice um, and how that could be applied in our subject area and how whether that would help as well. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of research that's been done around retrieval practice. And that is something that has been uh, incredibly popular and incredibly useful as well. Um, now, I do remember that actually um, in the article, she also talks about the fact that um, it helps the 
teacher to become to develop their own critical thinking skills. Um, now, whilst retrieval practice is a really, really great practice, I think what um, the journal really allowed me to do was to actually have the time to sit down and actually reflect on whether I was using it effectively enough or whether I was using it properly. Um, now, I think what I really got out of that was the fact that I went away, I tried the strategy, tried it over a long period of time until I realised that actually um, it was something that was becoming quite boring. So having, for example, um, five-a-day questions every single lesson for uh, my pupils was something that was quite demotivating and quite boring, whilst being useful, um, but it certainly took away from the sort of like... Uh, dynamics of the classroom or of the lesson um so I think I was able to bring that reflection back into the journal club that actually oh okay so this is a really really great practice but it certainly needs to be uh, mixed up with other ideas okay it can't, it can't just be the fundamental um and sole practice that the department uses and I think that's actually a really really great thing for um, teachers to be able to develop at any stage of their profession um, so that they're able to um, challenge um, schemes of learning and help the leadership in the department to be able to develop better resources that are more effective and engaging for pupils because ultimately it's the learning that's um, at the centre of everything that we do. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Teacher rounds are what we're hearing about next, first from the author and then from a double act of reader reflections. I'll leave them to introduce themselves. Teacher rounds are a form of peer coaching that take place and it's professional learning that takes place in the context of the classrooms, to where teachers learn from each other. There's no experts in teacher rounds. Everybody's there on an equal basis and everybody is there to learn. And that's why teachers love them. So rather than wasting time um, continually monitoring and you know putting staff under surveillance, which they tell me they, they feel they're under all the time, between formal observations, performance management, so-called learning walks, I call them monitoring walks, you know, spend the time allowing teachers to see each other teach, give them time to talk about what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're feeling, and give them a, a language and protocols to do that. But most of all, let's get away from judging them. Um, let them reflect on their own practice and talk about that with, with, uh, in a safe environment with their colleagues. Uh, Teacher Rounds are based on the work of Tom Dilpret, um, who's at Clark University in Massachusetts, and uh, his work is, is amazing. My article uh, was on Teacher Rounds and how they impact on teachers. I got involved... Um, doing my involved in teacher rounds when I was uh, doing my PhD at Brunel University and I was looking at uh, teacher rounds uh, working which is based on the work of Tom Dilpret um, and uh, my journey from head teacher to 
uh, researcher was um, an unusual one, a very different from me. I've been a head teacher for 17 years, a um, job I really enjoyed, but actually realised then that I hadn't spent much time in the classroom alongside working with children um, and working side by side with teachers. I had, however, been very much involved in the monitoring um, of teachers, observing lessons, giving feedback, even though I hadn't really taught myself for many years. Um, and it wasn't until I, um, until I was doing the research that um, I realised uh, that actually there was something wrong with this. Um, so working with teachers, so basically um, I was working, doing my research... Um, I was working alongside teachers in the classroom for over a year. There were three schools involved, two secondary and one primary, and 16 teachers who I got to know very well over time. And I learned a great deal about myself and about my own leadership, as well as what teachers actually think. Because when you're a head teacher, teachers tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, when you're a researcher, they tell you everything. And I was quite shocked from what I heard. I learned exactly how they feel about the constant surveillance and monitoring um, and being told how and what to teach. I was shocked by the lack of trust teachers have in the senior leadership team, even though they probably liked them personally, um, they weren't uh, very convinced by their ability to give them useful feedback and said that they closed down um, often very closed down um, when they were getting feedback. Um, they didn't really hear it. And what shocked me most of all was that this feedback from senior leaders didn't make um, bring about any improvements to their, to their teaching. Um, and and, and when I, it made me think about all the time and energy that's spent on uh, people going from class to class, looking at teachers and then giving them a list of targets. Um, so it was it was a it was a big lesson for me as a leader and something I'm keen to get out to other head teachers to to get them to actually trust their teachers to do the right thing. Um, teacher rounds and the feedback they got um, from each other uh, was really useful, and they said that actually getting feedback from their peers who were at the chalk or the whiteboard face really made a difference because they'd seen each other teach, they knew they were all doing the same job. And the thing about teacher rounds is that there's actually no, um, no judgment involved. And uh, so listening to feedback, uh, and teacher rounds has its own sort of protocols about how you give feedback, they said they found it really useful. There were no targets set for them. They were given an opportunity to reflect with their colleagues, to discuss what they were doing and to change their own practice if they felt that that was fit, that that was the right thing to do. One of the big outcomes was that they said the biggest um, learning curve for them was that there's no right or wrong way to teach. Everybody had to decide their own way. And that was a really important thing for them. And it gave them a sense of professionalism. It gave them a sense of agency, giving teachers a voice. Um, and sometimes I, I think in lots of schools, they're not really given a voice. We talk about pupil voice a lot, but actually we forget then to ask teachers what they want. Teachers said, 
uh, teacher, been involved in teacher rounds, seeing each other to teach um, and having the opportunity to uh, talk about what they'd seen and heard was the best CPD and professional learning that they'd ever have, that ever had. Um, the reasons for the success was because they'd watched each other teach, they had time built in and clear protocols to talk about what they'd just seen. And most of all, there was no judgment involved. The language used in discussion is really important and we made sure that nobody used any sort of Ofsted type jargon uh, and again that no judgments were ever made. It was all about reflection and all the participants and you know, we had between six and seven people in a group um, were learning during every time they went to see a lesson, every time they were involved in discussion. It wasn't just the feedback to the host teacher. In teacher rounds, the teacher who uh, is hosting the round decides on the problem of practice. They tell you what they want feedback on. doesn't mean that you can't give feedback on anything else, but there'd be particular things that they would want to know. And they felt in charge of that. And they, most of all, they trusted their colleagues. Um, very important that if you're going to do teacher rounds, that it has to be on a volunteer uh, basis. Teachers um, volunteer to be involved and you have to be very careful about um, senior leadership involvement. Uh, in one of my groups, there was a senior leader who, uh, who took part um, as a teacher, but there was no hierarchy. And it's very important that in every Every group, everybody's there on an equal basis. Equity is very important, no matter what their experience. And in a teacher round and in the follow-up discussion, we don't tell others what to do or give them solutions. It's actually by talking through things that they, they come to their own solutions. We don't say, well, I do this or you might do that or whatever. You have wanderings instead. If there's something that you're a bit concerned about, you might say, well, I wonder what might have happened if. And that, that language is really important is very positive um, uh, so teachers decide on any changes they're going to make to their own practice no target is set and it's not about um, them they have to decide what works best for them with their pupils um, so it's, it's it's really important that leaders and head teachers um, are able to trust teachers to talk about teaching and learning uh, without being supervised by SLT to give them a voice. Um, and once they start talking about teaching and learning, you give them protocols, you give them a framework, um, you can't shut them up. They want to talk about teaching and learning. Every teacher I worked with wanted to improve their practice. And one of the things they said was sometimes if you're uh, regarded as a good teacher, there's very little um, professional learning you know, on teaching and learning for you. Um, that You may be put towards um, leadership or you may, um, uh, you know, be, be um, monitoring, supporting uh, um, an NQT or a trainee and so on. But actually, you know, the research says that our teaching goes downhill after five years. So we need to keep... Um, keep on top of that ourselves and continue to improve. So I would recommend to anybody in a school, you're looking to use your resources wisely, look at teacher rounds and actually think how you might be able to apply that in, in your school and allow teachers to be in charge of their own professional development and allow them to decide 
how they're going to teach. Don't set in, uh, you know, put in fixed frameworks that they have to do this, this and this in this order. Let them decide for themselves. That's how you create the professional teacher and help them to go on improving. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. Hi, my name's Stevie Gamble and I'm Teaching and Learning Coordinator at a special needs school in Derbyshire. Hi, my name's Paul Burrows. I'm Deputy Head Teacher at the same school. We've both worked in mainstream secondary schools for many years before making the move across to special ed. Over the last couple of years, we've been um, trying to revamp our teaching and learning programme in terms of what we offer the teaching staff and really both very keen on making it more evidence-based and research-led. So over the last couple of years, we've introduced things like PLCs, professional learning communities, and also things like action research projects for all the staff. And what this research has done has allowed us to improve our quality assurance documents and pipe processes, for example, learning walks, observations and work scrutinies. One area that we wanted to focus on improving was our peer observation system. We found that it wasn't developmental and it was more friend to friend than critical friend. That wasn't really a fault of this teaching staff at all. It was more the, the system and, and the way that it was constructed uh, they were constrained by using the same proformers. The targets that were set weren't developmental and perhaps they were more kind. Um, and we felt that was an area that we could certainly improve and we were interested in finding out and looking at research to see what, what could improve that. So whilst we were doing that, whilst we are busy thinking about next year, um, quite fortunately, two things fell on our desk. One was teaching walkthroughs by Tom Sherrington and the other was the Impact Journal, uh, issue number nine, in particular the article by Kenny Fredericks on Teacher Rounds. So Teacher Rounds looks at um, a peer observation system within a group where there's no power dynamic and it's context free. And the focus is on sharing best practice. What we particularly liked about um, her article was the idea of wanderings and that idea of opening a professional conversation about I wonder what would happen if you tried this or I wonder what would happen if you had done this and we felt like it structured the conversation a little bit more. What we previously had was things like you know EBI's even better and what went well and they serve a purpose but they, they, the tone of the teacher rounds where it's much more collaborative and um, I think people will be more engaged with it because it, it, there's, there's less fear there because it is the wanderings. I, I thought that phrasing was really, really useful. We really liked the link between Kenny Fredericks and the walkthroughs book by Tom Sherrington. He talks about hub model and coaching your staff on how to even sit with each other and talk about um things that you might find difficult, but actually they better your teaching and learning. So we wanted to open that forum. Um, and what we intend to do at our school is create triads. So one of the things that Kenny looks at is an idea of having a large group. Now, that wouldn't be um, possible in our school, 
So we would like to facilitate the groupings. We're fortunate to be an all through school. So we've got primary teachers, secondary teachers and sixth form teachers working together. So we believe that we could create really context free triads of staff to share best practice. And we think there's real value in that. Um, you now, there is that good teaching is good teaching is good teaching. And so we didn't want to just compartmentalise that. And, for example, have all the primary colleagues working together. We felt it was better overall for the whole school that we, we set up on this teacher rounds as a, as a kind of way of improving everybody. Um, again, in that kind of non-threatening, non-power dynamic way, which we think suits our, our particular context. It does mean that we have to work on training the staff, uh, modelling the way that this would be. And so using the walkthroughs model alongside Kenny's model is going to be really beneficial, teaching the hub model to our staff and using it, the idea of wanderings as a conversation opener that becomes a critical friend um, and a developmental point, a place where feedback does benefit the classroom. What we've been really good at doing, much to the angst of the teachers, is, is have them do things like role play in our CPD sessions so that it literally models. And of course, we, we stand up at the front and, and do that to, to get to get it going. But that whole modelling, that whole lack of power dynamic, that whole coaching element um, is really key to getting something like this off the ground. Because it's all about buy-in for our staff. And we've got a wonderful staff which will buy into things when they're explained well. Um, I think that links well to our vision, though, of being research-led and being coached. Um, we have a fantastic coaching system at the moment, and our CPD is based on a coaching model. Um, what was really lovely about Kenny's uh, conclusion was that she said that her teachers reported greater confidence in teaching, Um and we want our staff to feel confident to use a variety of strategies that are research informed, that, you know, we've experimented on and that are bespoke to our school and our children's needs. So as we always do, we'll have a look around, we'll have, do a bit of reading, we'll bash it out amongst ourselves, we'll take it to the staff and we'll, we'll give it a try. And we look forward to um, hearing, um, look forward to feeding back to you the outcomes of our work. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next, we're taking CPD from the generic to the specific with Andrew Brown and then a reader reflection. Hi, everyone. I'm Andy Brown. And today I'm going to be discussing uh, my article, which is in the Impact Journal, um, titled CPD from the generic to the specific. So um, before I do discuss the model, I thought it'd be really important just to uh, give you an overview of some of the research which underpinned this. So the first one was from uh, Dylan William, who suggested that teacher quality is the most important ingredient of an effective education system. Okay, so teacher quality is really important. I don't think that's controversial. I think we'd all agree with that. And that led me to uh, some work by Fletcher Wood and Zicello in 2020 that says that high-quality CPD for teachers has a significant effect on pupils' learning outcomes. Okay, so high-quality CPD helps teachers improve outcomes. So those are two bits of research which really got my brain thinking and really led me to maybe looking at our CPD model. 
So after looking at our, the CPD on, on what we offer, uh, two bits of research really helped develop my thinking. The first one was the Welcome Trusts, developing great subject teaching, which suggested that schools that have the poorest academic or inspection results are the ones that are least likely to prioritise subject-specific professional development. And this uh, idea of subject-specific CPD was backed up by the Teacher Development Trust 2015 report, which articulated that subject-specific continued professional development, and that is enhancing uh, teachers' subject knowledge, has a greater impact on student outcomes than generic CPD. So very quickly, we're starting to understand that high-quality CPD... Uh, and by high quality CPD, um, improving student outcomes, uh, really needs to be uh, looking at being more subject specific to get the best outcomes. And I think Christine Council um, articulated this really nicely when she, she, she stated that we really need to start respecting uh, subject distinctiveness and not just uh, giving these generic strategies uh, to our teachers. So what does our model look like? Well, I think most schools will have five inset days or five CPD days. And from personal experience and from uh, speaking to other teachers, I would argue that quite often this looks like teachers sat in a hall listening uh, to uh, a few people discuss certain strategies, maybe on questioning or modelling, so on and so forth, and then asking you to go away and apply. Um, and I would argue that that is not as effective as maybe looking at more subject-specific models. So what do we do? Well, we have five days and two days we do give to whole school CPD. And the reason being that there are some whole school school priorities which we really need to focus on. So one might be safeguarding and your statutory requirements. And so the most effective way of transmitting that knowledge is whole school um, but the second day, uh, to give you an example of my personal school, was uh, we did a survey and dual coding came out as an area which most teachers wanted to focus on. Um, and so we invited Oliver Caviglioli in. And the reason we did this is because of Dave Weston's uh, book, Unleashing Great Teaching, which is wonderful, by the way. Um, and he stated that, you know, sometimes you have to go out to source subject expertise uh, to help improve what's going on in the building. And this kind of marries quite nicely with our model that if we are going to get all of our teachers sat in one room listening to one person, let's make sure he's an expert in the field and can deliver high quality CPD. Just uh, one thing to add to that is Oliver did say that uh, the final part of his session would not be good for maths teachers, wouldn't be effective. So rather than ask them to sit in there and waste their time, we invited Peter Matakin, who wrote Visible Maths, um, and he delivered a maths-specific session in the afternoon for our maths teachers to make sure that they had the most effective use of that time. So that's two days on whole school. Now, probably the most interesting part of our model is the individual level. Now, this is two days as well, and how this works is... Let's say you have two of your CPD days on the first day back after Christmas, so January the 8th, and the first day before Easter half term, uh, or April the 14th. We ask our teachers not to come in. And by doing that, they have two days at home, and, and as such, have two days in lieu. So now they've had two days extra at home, two days extra holiday. Now what we ask them to do instead is use these days to redeploy throughout the year some CPD which is um, 
pertinent to their specific individual CPD goals. And this is uh, something which is created at the start of the year using an audit and using a framework which we stole from Unleashing Great Teaching. Um, again, a reference to that wonderful book. And what does that look like? Well, teachers... Uh, Last year have attended research eds, they've attended uh, New Voices, they've attended the West London's History Conference, Geography Association's Conference, uh, Geography Icons, so on and so forth. But what it's allowed our teachers to do is invest uh, CPD time into Saturday conferences or uh, webinars, teach meets in the evening, reading, visiting schools, but it allows them to pick a focus and then do something with that focus which is pertinent to their own goals. Um, more importantly is because it's time in lieu as such they are doing it on school's time and they're not having to invest their own personal time into developing CPD. Um, one important caveat on that um, is that um, any of our teachers are allowed to choose what they do for that model. And so some have family commitments, some have other commitments on a weekend. Absolutely fine. They don't have to do a Saturday. You can do evening sessions. And equally, if you don't want to do any evening sessions, you can just do two Saturdays. It's totally up to you. The trust is with the teacher and we allow them to make best use of their time. So that leaves me with one day, and that is for our department level. And this is the newest part of our strand. And what we allow our teachers to do here and our heads of faculty is to design a day which is important for their own faculty based on an area of improvement that they may have identified. So to give an, an idea of what this might look like, someone like Maths have invited in Don Stewart. English have invited in Click Dickens. Some subjects have bought books for to read and then discussed at department meetings. Uh, some uh, subjects have bought packages. But this gives the power back to our faculty to be able to create a day of CPD which is really important to the subject that they are part of. So as an overview there, we have two days whole school uh, where the school chooses a priority, two days individual where it's all about the individual and focus on your areas, and then we have one day where our teachers uh, get together in subjects and create a day with a budget given to them by the school. So hopefully uh, that was a very whis uh, quick whistle-stop tour of our CPD model, but I am uh, more than happy to answer any questions uh, should you have any uh, on the model. Um, just contact me on Twitter. I'm sure it'll be linked uh, to the podcast. Um, but thank you very much for listening, and if you did read the article, uh, thank you very much. It's much appreciated. Um, have a lovely day. See you later. Bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Hi, I'm Lucy Hemsley and I'm an assistant head teacher responsible for CPD and currently on my second maternity leave. You can find me on Twitter at Chelt Teacher. And I'm really excited to speak to you today about an article by Andy Brown in the latest issue of Impact called CPD, From the Generic to the Specific. I was actually lucky enough to hear Andy talk about this earlier this year at Research Ed Birmingham to a really packed out room after Amanda Spielman recommended Andy's talk in her keynote speech. It's not surprising really, 
Ofsted, with their increased focus on the curriculum, now recognise and describe effective professional development as not just that which develops teachers' pedagogical knowledge, but also their content knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge. So Andy starts by asking, why focus on continuous professional development? And I really like his reference to Fletcher Wood and Succolo's research that showed that high quality CPD has a significant impact on student outcomes. Andy then goes on to explain what they changed, how they moved from a focus on whole school CPD with most staff receiving the same CPD to instead three distinct strands of CPD, whole school, departmental and individual CPD. For my own practice, this has really made me reflect on our structures of CPD We already have a a clear system in place for individualised CPD called our Self-Reflective Practitioner Programme. Every teacher has one additional free period per fortnight for their own CPD. Considering the department sort of CPD, we have moved away from having department time that focuses on administration um, to instead focusing on teaching and learning curriculum and assessment. But Andy's strands are so clear, so so defined. I really love these. And it's making me think, how can I do more to support our CPD moving from the generic to the specific? I just love it when Andy says how this approach has maintained the ability to drive forward whole school improvement whilst at the same time providing space for teachers and departments to take ownership of their own development in ways that relate to their own subject knowledge and pedagogical practices. I really love that. Um, So Andy then explains why we really should increase the amount of subject-specific CPD and he cites the TDT um, 20-15 report how subject-specific CPD has a much greater impact on student student outcomes than generic CPD does. Personally, as a, as a history teacher, um, I suppose I've really enjoyed doing some subject-specific CPD over lockdown, um, for example, the curricularium. Um, and, and this has really made me reflect on how I can support our middle leaders by creating the structures to provide more and high-quality subject-specific CPD. So then Andy goes on to give examples of what departmental CPD looks like at his school, um, where blogs are shared and and speakers might come in, how they discuss common errors. Um, I'm really interested in this and and keen to share that with our heads of departments and see what they think of it. Um, He then goes on um, to describe what individual CPD looks like now at his school and how um, giving inset days back to staff has allowed them um, to attend Saturday conferences or spend the time really how they wish. Um, He also talks about the CPD library, um, which has grown. And I really agree with Andy and like how he's providing the support to really enable personalised professional learning. Um, So thinking about my own practice and my school, during lockdown, we have um, shared a really large online database of resources that I pulled together um, 
working with others and and I'm I'm keen not I'm keen really to make sure that we maintain that database after lockdown we don't forget about those resources and and we make sure that we can support staff in their individualized professional development journey in flexible ways I suppose um so inspired by Andy um yeah and I'm also keen to invest and grow our physical CPD library like like he was talking about um to help develop what he says a culture where teachers seek information beyond the school gates and I like that kind of outward looking um perspective which Andy says is he's trying to encourage um so after this, Andy then discusses the outcomes so far of, of his, his the change of the approach to CPD, um, how CPD attendance um, has increased, how uh, staff are feeling more valued and supported with their CPD, and their GCSE results were the best ever. Um, so for me, I suppose that section about the outcomes um, has just made me think about my own evaluation tools of CPD, uh, of our CPD programme. Um, I've been working during my maternity leave as part of my kit days um, on a CPD strategy for next year. Um, and I'm drawing on Gusky's evaluation model a lot and also the EEF's implementation framework Um when thinking about my programmes of professional development. Um, but I suppose Andy's discussion of outcomes has made me really think about the need for me to consider how I will evaluate the outcomes of a professional development culture um, more generally and how I'll evaluate that move to more specific CPD. So that's it. Thank you, Andy. It was such a really great article with so many, many takeaways. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next, we are going to hear from Alison with her reflections on the article on inclusive pedagogy. Hi, I'm Alison Zions, and I'm a secondary teacher of health and social care and also a PhD student at Goldsmiths in Educational Studies. I've also been a member of the Chartered College of Teaching since 2017 and took part in the pilot CTEACH program. Because of my own research interests, I was drawn to two articles in this Issues of Impact in particular. The first article I want to talk about is Eddie Lee's Developing Inclusive Pedagogy piece. In this article, he discusses the importance of examining the pedagogical practices within our teaching experiences to better support all students in the classroom. The key question that he articulates, to what extent are we able to create learning without limits, struck me as so vital for today's young people. The research that Lee incorporates into his article highlights the close parallels between inclusive pedagogy and the everyday pedagogy of our teaching. This line stuck with me for about a week after reading it, because that's the way it should be. As teachers and as educational practitioners, we must strive to make sure all students within our classroom can learn and can make progress, and we'll do whatever we can to help impart knowledge and skills to them. Lee then goes on to present an argument that many of the teaching and feedback strategies that have become more popular in the last decade are quite inclusive pedagogies themselves. Those that emphasize pupil dialogue, collaboration, choice, exploration, learning, and the general principle of learning to learn rather than learning just for a big exam. 
According to Lee, by incorporating as many methods into our pedagogical toolbox as possible, we can best support more and more students in our classroom environments. But what I loved about this article was that while Lee, Eddie Lee wrote it to consider inclusion in terms of students with different abilities and needs, you can use the ideas around developing an inclusive pedagogy for a wide range of characteristics. The idea is that all young people and all staff should feel included within the teaching and learning. And it's the responsibility of the educational practitioners to make sure that the curriculum is set up to be as inclusive as possible. Teachers must be flexible to the needs of young people in their classroom, but not only to their educational needs, but also in terms of what they want to achieve in life. We need to make sure we're setting them up for that 21st century world where feedback may not be written and that digital technologies might be the most appropriate ones. I like to think about my own post-16 students and the shift that's taken with them in terms of their new levels of responsibility. I feel we often expect them to have greater maturity and self-control than their GCSE counterparts, but really, they also need help in developing their own toolbox for self-reliance and abilities. If we demonstrate through our teaching practices, throughout their educational lives, different teaching and learning methods, when they get to the point where we're expecting more from them in terms of independence and preparation, they can learn from our more inclusive examples and begin to adapt strategies in their own way. Our inclusive pedagogy will not only influence the day-to-day -day teaching, but will be a model for young people as to how they can adapt their own learning practice to become flung learners. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready to go staff training sessions. The final article for this episode comes from Vivian Porritt and Catherine Morgan, who generously gave some time for a Zoom call together to discuss their article. This will be followed by a reader reflection. So we are very excited to be contributing to the um, podcast from Page to Practice. My name is Catherine Morgan. Um, I'm a teacher educator. I've been a deputy head of a primary school and also director of professional learning and development in a multi-academy trust in Birmingham. I've just finished working with Ambition Institute and I'm very passionate about professional learning and development and leadership. Um, I've got my my good friend, my mentor um, <laughs> as well, who contributed to our um, Charter College of Teaching article, Vivian Porritt. So Vivian, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Um, hello, Vivian Porritt. I'm a leadership consultant. I'm the vice president of the Chartered College of Teaching, and I'm a strategic leader for Women Ed. And my professional passion is professional learning and development and the impact that it has for teachers, leaders and for students. So we're contributing to the podcast today because Vivian and I co-authored an article for the Charter College of Teaching, Impact, um, and it is entitled Achieving a Professional Learning Culture, Issues, Improvements and Impact. And we're going to endeavour now to give you a flavour of the contents of that article, which can be found on the Charter College of Teaching website, and also really try and give you some further insights into the application of this approach. 
So first of all, to give you a uh, brief introduction to our why, um, I took on a new role as professional learning and development lead at the Prince Albert Community Trust in Birmingham. And I was fortunate to have seen Vivian lead a talk um, at the Evolve Trust conference. And there, Vivian really spoke very um, passionately about professional learning and development and the role of impact. And it was a powerful uh, session that Vivian led because it really challenged us all to consider how we were leading professional learning and development in our organisations, what language we were using, and actually how we knew that what um, we were providing for our colleagues was making any difference. So I asked Vivian to support me at the PACT um, to create a professional learning and development culture that would really have impact and the intended difference that we wanted our CPD provision to make at its heart, at its core. So to give you some um, insight into what uh, the, the the issues were. Uh, the Prince Albert Community Trust is, is a thriving trust in Birmingham. Um, it's made up of uh, five primary schools and soon to be a secondary school. And one of the issues that we had was really making sure that we had um, tailored professional learning and development that met the needs of individual staff and groups of teachers, as well as uh, it positively impacting on student outcomes. So prior to this, there would be staff meetings after school, we'd have inset days, and there would be quite a generic flavour of professional learning and development that was on offer. So the idea was to really inquire and understand more about needs. Needs, so individual needs in terms of our colleagues knowledge and skills and then also having a look at the needs in terms of student outcomes so curriculum needs etc and I called upon uh, Vivian's expertise to support me to try and establish the type of approach to leading professional learning and development that meant that staff's needs were really at the heart of uh, the professional learning and it was making a difference then in the classroom and also to their satisfaction of their job. So that was essentially our why um, and then Vivian supported me in the process. So Vivian, do you want to um, give some insight into your approach really to impact-driven CPD? Um, yes, thanks, Catherine. Um, my approach is based on Thomas Gusky, an American academic who's um, fabulous to read, very clear, very articulate um, in what he suggests are ways in which we can improve the process, the culture of professional learning within a school. Um, I think there is still a lot of practice that we we can help be more focused and achieve a greater impact and that's where I always start what what is the impact you want from any kind of professional learning and development um, what difference do you want to make and if you were able to make that difference what's the evidence that would tell you it's in practice it's there what becomes obvious as I talk with people and and certainly in this case Catherine didn't it was that that is a very difficult question to answer yeah. most of the time. Yeah. And that's because there hasn't been enough of a systematic plan and process around what professional learning does for a school, does for the leaders, the teachers and the students. And because that question is difficult, 
it often means leaders fall back on, well, we'll do this then. So it's trying to clarify that, that what shall we do about improving practice, improving student learning, is the wrong starting question. It should be, what do we want to happen that at the moment we feel we aren't quite achieving that? And that was always, I remember in our conversations, Catherine, that was quite a challenging conversation, wasn't it? Because people were all, your colleagues were always falling back on, but we need to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, as leaders, we often get um, pushed into certain directions because of school development plans, because of accountability measures and wanting to see improvements in results. And absolutely, professional learning and development is a vehicle to improve um, results. But I think sometimes we we hope to see that impact too quickly. And we, 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 we don't always see it because we haven't started, as you've said, with really understanding exactly what that need is, not just then in terms of making a difference to student outcomes, but I think I've said to you before, many of us have sat in, um, you know, staff meetings or insets and we've had uh, professional learning delivered to us that we may already be able to do. And we might actually be very competent in that particular piece of knowledge or that particular um, skill that we're developing. Um, But we all just tend to get the same thing, the same diet. And then that's why it doesn't end up having the intended impact. Um, Absolutely. And whilst I know a lot of schools have moved away from what we called in the article the transmission model, teachers as passive receivers of isolated learning, even the schools that have moved past that are still not yet, I would argue, as forensically focused on the difference, the impact, the intended outcome of the professional learning opportunity. Um, And it's a very simple concept but it challenges our current established processes, which is why people find it hard. And then, of course, if they find that question hard, the implications of that question are even harder because we've then got to say, if we want to achieve this, where are we currently? What does it look like now? So our first question's got to be, what do we want it to look like And what do we want the evidence? What kind of evidence will tell us we've made a difference as a result of professional learning and development? And then we have to take a step back and say, well, what does that look like now? Because until we've had that clarity achieved through those two questions, how can we actually decide what professional learning and development is needed to make that change. And and that's the bit that I get frustrated with with a lot of leaders because you can't decide what learning and development is needed till you know what the issue is you're trying to address in a clear, evidenced way. Was that hard for you, Catherine, then? Yeah, I think it is It is difficult because um, what it requires is lots of time and effort to actually enter into um, meaningful conversations with colleagues and really understand the behaviours and actions of their practice. So, you know, their theories of actions that are underpinning the practice that you see in the classroom. And I think it's moving away from that superficial consultation and really having that um collaborative approach to co-construct 
testing the difference that you want to make, which from my experience, Vivian, has a significant positive impact on staff buy-in. So it's not CPD that's done to them. It very much is um, done with them. And I think that's a, a really key key point to make here. Yes, absolutely. That That's supporting a professional learning culture to grow and to flourish. And then, therefore, for the teachers and the leaders in the school to grow in confidence and to believe that they are contributing to those school development plans, contributing to a, a thorny issue that needs tackling. And uh, I know a lot of people in response to the article really liked the trust-wide approach that we can, we we came up with as a way of describing the nature of the process, a one to seven point process, which of course requires a lot of commitment, a lot of time and a lot of collaborative shared thinking. It's not a quick fix. So it's really about if we want a professional learning culture, we've got to be prepared to say this isn't a one-off thing. This is a sustained collaborative process that has a range of steps to take and in a way missing out any of those steps I think lessens the impact that you can achieve so you don't have to do the one to seven steps as described in our article but any of those processes you miss out means that you aren't going to have the 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 full impact that is the potential for this way of working. Absolutely. And I think something else to really um, emphasise about the the seven uh, steps is that we really do see this as an iterative process and a cycle and one that is to be repeated. And I think like any culture, you're never finished with it. It takes constant uh, nurturing and um, constant attention to, to be able to establish the type of culture where everybody feels like they have ownership of their professional learning and development. Yes, you've got designated leaders who are really taking um, the lead on different aspects of the provision, but it is very much a shared endeavour and one where people see the value of giving the time and effort um, that, let's be honest, we all know time is, is very scarce in the world of education and it's important that people really value and, and see that professional learning and development is something that's going to positively improve their practice, improve student outcomes and ultimately increase job satisfaction as well. Yes, and and I was really impressed about the way you went about that process, really determined to um, gain as, to develop as as strong a learning culture as was possible. And and in the end, that meant that the process has to take even longer because it was fabulous that for Highfield School, the desired impact was achieved. But in the end, we'd had to redefine the impact given the timescale. And we realised we needed a two sets of impact. So the first one was for the colleagues, your colleagues, Catherine, so that by the end of the work, they had quality, protected time to learn, develop and improve. And that has been a real success. And of course, what that now means is there's a, there should be, there needs to be a second phase of the project, which is within that quality professional learning culture 
what now is the difference that that can make for the students at Highfield? Um, it's a kind of less is more. Let's decide one very clear impact outcome to enable us to move to what is the harder, the more desired impact of improvement for students. Te students won't improve unless teachers improve. It's as simple as that. I agree. And I, I think Highfield's a really good example that um, they've gone on and, and really used this the, uh, the original phase um, as a platform and have then iterated, iterated their own process. And um, yeah, I would encourage anybody to contact Highfield to learn more about how they've uh, embedded this um, professional learning and development culture because they're doing some really impressive things. Um, and that's going to be our next article, we hope then. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So hopefully that's provided listeners with some insights into our Charter College of Teaching impact article. And um, as Vivian said, we're aware that we had to condense that. Um, and there's so much more that we could um, share with you all about how we went about this approach. And so we are hoping to um, to really unpick what's happening at Highfield now and write a, a bigger article. But for now, hopefully that's given you some, some insight into um, our thinking and our approach. Anything you'd like to add, Vivian? No, just it was a pleasure working with you and, and a pleasure to get the space and time to do something that is making such a significant difference for the colleagues at Highfield. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Hi, I'm Louise Lewis, a research lead from a high school in East Yorkshire. I'm reflecting on the article in the latest issue of Impact by Vivian Porritt and Catherine Morgan, Achieving a Professional Learning Culture, Issues, Improvement and Impact. This is really is a must read for anyone who is involved in senior leadership, designing CPD, professional learning or has any involvement in delivering training to our colleagues. It's really interesting in the way that it looks at going from a generic system of CPD where one size fits all, which I'm sure many of us have been exposed to in our career to date moving towards a more professional learning environment which is bespoke and needs driven both for the needs of the school and needs of particular teachers as well. The article takes us through lots of evidence uh, from people like Gusky and it looks at how we can take the baseline of what we, we have within a school or even a multi-academy trust. What are we starting with? And where do we want to end up? So the article recommends that we start to focus on the beliefs and values that underpin teachers' practice within your establishment. And we move away from that prescriptive approach to a more purposeful collaboration where we achieve trust, achieve buy-in and are able to generate a really bespoke uh, needs-driven plan where we have a system where teachers' needs are established and learning students' learning needs are established, taking us to this baseline where we have a problem driving a solution as opposed to that solutionist approach where we 
take a solution to address a problem that may not exist in our establishments. In doing this, it reflects on how we could really envisage what success would look like. What would the indicators of impact be for your organisation? And what would those tangible goals be um, in the future? So we have a real vision of what that success looks like. So to start off with the baseline, the authors recommend that we take several weeks to survey staff and students. We have lots of really professional conversations, really um, thinking about what is happening within our organisation right here, right now. And that could involve things like peer observations, which are low threat, non-judgmental but just there to serve a purpose of where are we at now so we can really start to plan for what that success might look like and how we might get there. Within the article, they talk about um, achieving a new type of practice with professional learning, um, moving away, as I said, from that kind of passive knowledge transmission approach to teachers and looking at a new practice of applying, trialling and evaluating knowledge against the baseline and those impact indicators. So in order to achieve this, they look at um, an impact model, which follows seven steps, starting with um, the inquire step, which involves looking at a needs analysis, doing that baseline survey and doing a real forensic needs, anal needs analysis around where you are, where you want to be. Then you would move on to uh, research and design, which looks at um, what are the learning opportunities open to us and what do we want to design uh, from evidence-informed practice. Moving from research and design, then we can move to learn which utilises expert input from both um, internal sources and external sources um, to deliver um, any kind of professional learning that is required. Moving from learning on to uh, develop, which allows our colleagues to experiment and to practice those things that they are learning through their professional um, development. From that developed stage, they would move to um, improve practice and um, that would really involve um, formative assessment of knowledge, looking at behaviour, skills and learning and what has happened thus far within that impact model. Um, moving towards that impact evaluation. Um, so it, it involves assessing to what extent that intended difference has been achieved so how far are you or how close are you to that success that you envisaged at the start of your impact model then that would move towards an iterate and repeat um, stage ultimately refining and honing through a series of evaluative processes to ensure that whilst our teachers are having their learning needs met. They are addressing the learning needs of our students. So for me, taking this article and thinking about how it would apply to classroom practice, ultimately, when we think about professional learning or CPD on any level, 
the greatest point of any kind of professional learning is really to ensure that we are addressing the needs of what is happening in our classroom. So we would start with what are the gaps for our students? Where are we not being as successful as we are in other areas? And what do we as colleagues need to do about it? And this article is really important in driving that needs approach, that problem um, driven approach, ensuring that CPD isn't for CPD's sake. It's serving a purpose to improve the need, improve the outcomes for our students. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. That's it for episode two of four. Please, if you're enjoying these at all or getting anything from them, then a quick review on iTunes would be greatly appreciated to help even more people find the podcast. See you for episode three on leadership and learning. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.